Me is uh, personal, and Samaritan replies, so, uh, Cause has to be personal for all of us, obviously. That's a good question to think of already. Is the Holocaust personal for you? But for me, it's certainly personal because uh, my family is very much affected. My grandparents are both survivors. My Donic Auschwitz, the whole thing. Um, tattoos, n- nightmares. But not only that, my mother, Yibola Ben Chaim Lechaim, lives in Harnof, a few minutes away from here, was also a survivor. Really, in fact, at the end of the war, she was in a Nazi bus on the way to be, what we think, killed, and a, a Russian tank stopped that bus. So that's why I'm here. And, um, and we actually spoke together. Michal Avriyar has a Holocaust program, Rabbi Rovis also. On one time, I was I was together with my mother, more trying to stay out of the way and let her talk, and it was people were very moved by her story. But... As this is sheer, even in class and not inspirational schmooze, I'm going to attempt to put my feelings aside and deal with the topic from uh, hopefully intellectual to our perspective. Why should we study the Holocaust? Uh, we study here in Chappelle's. Why do we do this? Why do we take out time from learning? And why should this study, if it should be one that we continue past our time in Chappelle's? This really relates, importantly, to why should we study Jewish history at all? Should we study Jewish history? Should we know Jewish history? Is it important? So the question, to be honest, would seem a bit of amaratus. Um, my Rebbe's son, Tzviarye, Blachman, said, by my father, was the worst thing was to be an amaratz. Yeah? Can't be an Amaratz or Bosay. So it's a big Amaratz, it's not to a Pusik. There's a Pusik in Tvarim, Paraglama Days, Pusik Zain. Sechor Yemosalam Binushnos Dor Vador. Remember the days of the world. Understand the years of, of generation to generation. Yemosalam, history. Shalavicha Vyagedcha, Zikenecha Vyomulach. Ask your father and he will tell you. Your elder will speak to you. That certainly seems to be talking about history. Jewish history. We agree? Pashup Shat. Going from the Amik Yosemite Interestingly, we also see the idea of Avin Ben over here. Zokin and asking. Reminiscent of the Seder. It's reminiscent. And I can't say there's no other place in the Torah and Tanakh where it speaks like this, but it's definitely notable that the, this topic is that important that the Pasuk is giving us this dynamic. Ask your father. Ask your Zikanim. Talk to people. Understand. And we see the Pasuk, the father has to have answers. You know, it's not like, ask your father. I don't know. Ask your Zakane. I don't know. That's going to be a little disappointing for the children. Obviously, the Pasuk is telling us that there's an expectation that the fathers can explain something to the kids. And the Zikanim can't just say, well, you know, I'm good in Shas. Don't ask me about history. Don't ask me to underst- about understanding. Rav Hirsch, Kedarko, explains this Pasuk so beautifully, I want to read it, what he says. Zichru es avar. Remember the times past. That's Zichru. Vlod el binu. Understanding. Right? That's what the Pasuk says. Zichor binu. Remember. Understand. Chidru omik mashmutam. Delve into the depths of their Meaning, hiskilu, be intelligent about it. 
and understand the different generations. What was the lessons of the Nach period? What was the lesson of the first base of Mikdash? What was like in the lesson of the second base of Mikdash? No, even something like that. The time of the base of Mikdash. The more I reflect on it, I realize how different the Zman of the first base of Mikdash, we'll touch on that later, was in the time of the second base of Mikdash. What was the message of the first base of Mikdash? What was the message of the second base of Mikdash? One second. Were there really two Bati Mikdashes? Did we come back? We came back out of Gullus? It wasn't just like one long period. Do we still have the base of Mikdash? You know? By the Shlishi? If the judicial reform goes through, then it's done? Where, where, where are we holding? Built, rebuilt. Dor Adam, Dor Enosh, Dor Amabo, Dor Aflaga. Understand, like, Ikbu means, like, to follow. Follow the level of man. What was it? Like, see, Rabbeinu Ramchal talks about the different periods. What was the periods pre Matan Torah? How did that fit into the whole picture? Post Matan Torah. What was that? Etc. Vahakach. That's you yourself. That's the first step. Zichru. Binu. Then Shaladi Chaviyadcha. Shalat Avichal Astori Shalcha. Ask your dad about your history. Where are we from, dad? And he will show you his chosen toys. That's the father. As we spoke about at that are wise men. can explain to you your history. Listen to this. And your personal message in time. Where are we? Well, I can't know too much about my personal goal if I don't understand where Klai's role is at all. The Zikanim can explain to you a little bit where we stand in history and what our job is. It's not just that Pasik, Rabbi said, but it's many other places. It seems that we had history books among us. Savior Yeshua, 10.13. We refer to Yeshua's tremendous victory when the sun stood for him. Nefesh Shemesh Begivon Dom. Halohik Tubal Sefer Yashar. It's written in Sefer Yashar. What's Sefer Yashar? Right? It doesn't mean Beratius. It's written. That's not written. It's, it was written. It seems there was a history where we spoke about it. Malachim Beis Aleph Yudches. Al Sefer Hayamim Lemach Yisrael. That's like a history book that Mach Yisrael had. Malachim Beis. So we see we had history books. Is a command to remember a selected historical event. Obviously, it was a reason that historical historical event was chosen, right? We sit in the sukkah to remember that Hashem sat us in clouds of glory as we travel the midbar, and the more vividly and sharply we remember that, the better we will be. How much? What's the point of all this remembrance? How much do we need to study? It needs a lot more work. But I'm here, as this shares in general, to give a general picture of things. The basic concept, I think, is quite clear. Rav Tzadik writes, It's a lashon of command. Rav Tzadik says, Great Hasidic Master, Remember, the chesed the Kaddish Baruch Hu showed us. Our person said, Hashem is mischesed in me. You're right. The person has to find chesed in his life. But there's a historical chesed process which Hashem has had for the Jewish people. Zechor, you're supposed to remember that. Interestingly, this is really interesting, 
No less than the Kloseberger Rebbe, we learned about in the summer, led by Rav Roh, that indomitable Gadol who lived through the Holocaust, lost so much and rebuilt so much. Tanya, hospital, Lanyado. He was told of a proposed author for, for a kina. Right? And we, we discussed that a little bit. The idea we have kinos and, and Gedolim added some kinos. Some Gedolim didn't like to add, add kino, and some don't say, I personally do say, I like the yeshiva says, but you know. But, uh, but there, an author was, someone said to the Kloseberger, maybe we'll have X person who was a big Yerushalayim and a good writer write a kina. It wasn't a secular person. Had some, someone, you won't go to offer to the Kloseberger that his friend Ben would write the kina, right? It was someone, it was someone reputable on a Jewish way to write the kina. The Kloseberger said, It wasn't enough for someone to be a big Yerushalayim and a great writer, but a Zechoyim Osolom. Only a Zechoyim Osolom could write a kina. Someone who could learn from history, someone who understood this, and he said, that really had to be a God of Yisrael. You have to be a big person. Eliezer Khalir, one of the, the Balitosis wrote kinas, the Shach, Tosis Yomtev. They could encompass both the physical suffering and the spiritual touch as these are spiritual matters. So I'll show that. So you see, you see a, how, how serious that was. He was talking about a chash of a person. To write a kina, he's not a... Zechoyim Osolom is beyond him, this idea. So we see that it's not a sterile knowledge of history. And that's where I think sometimes people get distracted. Because, you know, you think of a historian as some stuffy guy who's not necessarily looking at his relevant his life. So that's not what we mean by Jewish history. But we mean to understand less of Jewish history and the Holocaust, which is real to us. True Jewish history. So we see, friends, the many psukim and mefarshim. It's about knowing Hashem's chesed with us. It's about knowing how Klai Yisrael acted. It's as Rav Shem Shafal set us understanding our shlichus today. And it's, of course, about learning the mistakes of the past and from the experience and challenges of the past. And, as has been said, those unaware of history will make the same mistakes. And often, more than that, you think you're going through something new which has really been done before. Deeper than not just making the mistakes, but you don't understand the whole tukufa you're living in. So that's a general word about Jewish history and why it's important. Okay. But why the Holocaust specifically? Now, to anybody who knows a little Ramchal, I don't think that would be a question. Let me explain. Rabbeinu Ramchal and Derech Hashem and Das Tunis especially reveals to us how much Chachmas Hashem is every little nuance and step in history. History is with a capital H. History. A lot of what we're going to be doing at the time of reward, what are we going to be involved in then? For sure we're going to be learning a lot of Torah, right? We're going to feel a lot of closeness to Hashem. But a lot of what we're going to be doing is looking back at what was and understanding it. And seeing how all these things fit in. This story that we're involved in right now. all the small things happening in your life, all the big things happening. And not just understanding, we're going to take great pleasure in it. Right? It's like someone loves chess. People really study chess. And they study the old moves. You know, why this is movement. And you look at the grandmaster making a move and it doesn't seem to make any sense. And then you look back and you understand, wow, that's pleasurable if you like chess. Right? So therefore, if something is 
historic, horrific, as far-reaching as the Shoah, obviously has untold layers of depth. Has to be. And for sure, if we would study it our whole life, we wouldn't scratch the surface of all the Amkus and all the Darche Hashem and all the things that are happening. Yeah, that's in a general way. But more specifically, and I don't mean comprehensively, I think eight areas come to mind that the study of the Shoah can show us about. And from there, as you hear our classes here, and as you study, you know, perhaps use as a framework maybe add other categories, but think like, what, 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 what is this Limud? So I think one area is, and again, I'm not necessarily coming to give the answers, but I'm giving the, the, the headlines. One is what the Holocaust tells us about mankind. Two is what the Holocaust tells us about the Germans. Three, what the Shoah tells us about other nations of the world. Four, what it tells about Klai What it tells about how, how Hashem runs the world. What it tells about dealing with Yisurim, dealing with difficulties. Seven, the unique Divrei Torah that were produced during this period. And what it tells about Orthodox and non-Orthodox leadership. Okay, those are eight areas. When I sat down and thought about it, that came to me. So we're going to touch on some of these areas more, some of them less, draw out some of the lessons, but that's like a a web. Mankind. What does the show tell us about mankind? How did what happened in Germany in the 20s and 30s, 40s happen? You know, I read a history book one time. It said there was nowhere, I think it was a Jewish intellectual or any intellectual would want to be and in history than the 1920s in Berlin. You know? That was like the place to be. Culturally, intellectually. How did it happen? Now, no doubt, as we'll discuss, part of this is the riches of the Germans. But there are lessons for mankind and for us. As Jews also. In that there's a powerful documentary movie called The Wave. Anybody see it? So The Wave. So it's based on a true story in a U.S. university. You know, based on a true story means in the movies. It took like three, you know, words and everything else they made up. So I don't know how much they made up, but I think it was more, you know, along the lines of being accurate. So there's a group that was made up, and they made like, on a university, they made all types of rules for themselves. And at, at first it started out friendly enough, and then, you know, I think it was, it, was a, it was an experiment. I forgot whether it was an experiment even. But then it created like this herd mentality. And if you were, it was very exclusionary. You were either in the club, part of the wave, or you were outside. And you never knew who the leader was. It was like this demagogic figure in the background. And the finale was finally they had a meeting. And the grand leader was going to be revealed. And it was over a few months on this university. Probably in California. And they finally get up and they show the big leader. And it's Hitler. And then, of course, people understood what they had fallen for. They started crying because they weren't Nazis. They were nice American college students. 
It's very scary. The power of a group, of herd mentality, of what can happen. You know, you know. There's a there's a uh, a, a true study uh, that's done where you look at like the picture of of a line about this big, and then there's another line about this big, and the line about that big, and a line about that big. And obviously, A is the one that's similar. And the way the study was done was they had people in the room, and they were actors. But you don't realize you don't realize everybody else is an actor, and you're there, and they ask you, well, which one is is it A? Here's the here's the model. Is it A, B, or C? And of course, you immediately answer A. But if the guy before you says B, well, you usually say A also. But if 20 people before you say C, then about 75% of people also say C, the non-actors. All the actors say C, and they change your mind, right? I saw this actually said in a UNESCO article about studying the Holocaust. I'll read a little bit. This study raises questions about human behavior and our capacity to succumb to scapegoating or simple answers to complex problems in the face of vexing societal challenges. Right? Germany, if you know the history, had a big societal challenge. They lost World War I. The, the agreements they had were very, very bad, or they were good, or whatever, etc. And then they were dealing with issues. The Holocaust illustrates the dangers of prejudice, discrimination, anti-Semitism, dehumanization, right? Please try to hear this more openly than just where the Jews have suffered. Let's, let's learn. It demonstrates the fragility of all societies and of the institutions that are supposed to protect the security and rights of all. It shows how these institutions can be turned against a segment of society. The potential for extreme violence and the abuse of power and the roles that fear, peer pressure, indifference, greed, and resentment can play in social and political relations. The power of extremist ideologies, propaganda, the abuse of official power, and group-targeted hate and violence. Now, again, as Jews, us, this knowledge is very important. Because we are often on the victim side of that batch of nefarious notions. For sure. And we have to know that. Right, that democracy, with all it's brought the world, can fall apart like a flimsy card, and we do see that happening a little bit, you know, in Western countries and the United States, and we're seeing glimpses of that already. But increasingly, friends, we have to watch it on ourselves. Now, there's an article which I shared a lot in Yeshiva after it happened after the riot, takeover, whatever it was, you know, at the elections. So, Ron Lopiansky Shlita, one of the great thinkers of our times, the Yeshiva of Silver Spring, comes speaks in the Yeshiva. He wrote a landmark article. Amazing. You can get on the Mishpacha website, I believe. You should read it, Be'in and often. Like Rabbi Fisher says about voting. Vote early and vote often. Yeah? So, this article, read it often and read it Be'in. So, I'm going to share a little bit of what the Rav said. You know, and think about how this relates to our world sometimes. What was missing that allowed these events to be thinkable, to be possible? Right? How do you suddenly, you know, run the <laughs> run on Congress or what was the Senate building? What is up? So he says the two the two missing factors were a lack of das one and two not regarding civility as a virtue, not really thinking, and you don't see there's any mile in their or you know, fair discussion, civility. 
We saw the, this is the exact quote from his words, we saw the lack of das in the way the events unfolded. They followed the typical script of a populist revolt. Simple slogans, unencumbered by nuance and unburdened by proof. Uh, that's good prose, guys. Unencumbered by nuance and unburdened by proof. Stop the steal, the deep state, rigged elections. Said Rev. Lopiansky, these are serious accusations. In order to prove them, one needs a calm, deliberate forum to consider evidence and to weigh it. If you've seen clips of extremist leaders rousing the masses, parentheses against the Jews, or inveighing against the bourgeois, usually code language for the Jews, the dynamic is eerily, fil- eerily familiar. People relish the simplicity of the message. How much do we like simple messages? Just keep it simple. The adrenaline rush. The ready solution to their woes. The roar of a thunderous satisfaction greets the speaker. The other factor is not regarding civility as a virtue. If people don't see menschlichkeit, civility, as a virtue, then what is to stop them when they become distraught or frustrated from behaving the way that mob did? And now, see I put in bold on my paper, particularly with regard to our Torah community, do we have das? Do we find ourselves and our children thinking through issues, weighing the different sides deliberately, and making nuanced decisions? Unfortunately, too often this is not a case. Not the case. We expect our speakers and media to be solely on one side or the other, avoiding complexity and anything less the claim to be perfect solution. Yes, when it comes to people we agree with, we're affable. But if we disagree, even in the slightest, the other side can become the object of every vile attack from anonymous Pachkevilim. You guys know what Pachkevilim are? The signs, you know, the signs, the black and white signs. Signs on the wall. I went Zoha to one. But, uh, you know, it's the signs on the wall. You know, this guy's this, this guy's that. It's harassing phone calls. I know people. I met a woman recently. I know her husband got harassed phone calls. Death threats. To calling Choshev Rev by nickname. This goes on. All is fair game. The destructive, this destructive behavior does not end with the outside enemy. It is a mode of behavior, and as soon as a member of my group dissents, he in turn is given the same treatment, right? It's us against them, and then suddenly one of the Rabbanim in my community is a little more nuanced and says, whoa, 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 he's out now. He's the Russia. He in turn is given the same treatment, and society keeps fracturing helplessly. If we cannot muster civil and mental behavior towards intellectual and ideological opponents, then our society will become most unpleasant for all. End of the quote from Rabbi Lopiansky. Those were his lessons. And that's what he saw would happen. You know, I must say, you know, reading these lines, I'm proud to be connected to Chappelle's and what we saw last week, that we can talk about things, that we can discuss things, and show different points of view, and think about them in a nuanced way, and, and, and keep thinking about them. See, everything in life isn't simple. It's not all black and white. It's not all little boxes. So the Holocaust has a lot to teach us about mankind. Human nature. And I hope everybody sees all that we said, all those things, understand that they're relevant to us. We were on the right side in the 30s and 40s, so to speak. But we can easily be on the wrong side. And we are often on the wrong side. It would be foolish, haughty, and not aware of what's going on in our own community so often to just ignore those lessons.
All that being said, that was number one. And again, that's something a person, I'm just, I'm giving the, we went into that, but that's the idea of like, what does the Holocaust say to me about human nature and mankind? What lessons, what historic lessons can I learn from it? Just to connect it to myself, per se, as the Jew that suffered there, but what, what, what is this? I think the Shoah also tells something about the Germans. It wasn't any nation that did this. The Nazis had first class, ready and willing helpers. Their Ukrainian buddies, their Lithuanian lackeys, their the Polish. My grandmother told me many times. I'm sure Iro has members of his family saying similar things. You know, this one was worse. They were the worst. I forgot. Oh, my grandmother's totem pole. But many times, don't don't be misun don't be led astray. But the Nazis, the Germans, certainly led, conceived, architected, executed like no nation ever before or after. Now the word genocide gets bandied about today. It's certainly a very sad thing to me that you know Jews in America will use the word about the state here. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> really. Something you could debunk so easily? You believe that garbage about your family? No? I just had a get taxi the other day. It said, third ride is my third mod- my third, you know, they tells you, to tell you how great an experience to take get taxis. You know, it's your birthday, it's a driver's birthday. So it's like the third time I've been with Ahmad, you know. I said, oh, third time. They will be together fourth time. We'll go, I go to Arab doctors all the time. Genocide? Really? You believe that? One quarter of American Jews believe that today. At a certain age stage. It's very sad. But anyway, we know it gets bandied about, right? It certainly is misused. But even when the word is fairly used, it's so dissimilar to what happened then. And you have to study that. I don't want to go into it, you know, right now, but something to think about. It's definitely something to think about. How did that nation, what was it there in them that went that far? What lessons that tell me today? What I can trust, what I can't trust, through going getting a deeper understanding of that question. Okay, so we spoke about mankind as a whole, we spoke about Germans. What about the other nations? Said so a lot of lessons there also. Again, I'm telling you things I know, read the books, facts don't have feelings. There are countless stories about non Jews that turned on Jews in the Holocaust. Countless. It's recounted how the Holy Blue Jew Rebbe Bisrael Shapira had a German friend living in Poland named Herr Müller. His name was Poland. Every morning the Rebbe would say, Good morning, Herr Müller. And Herr Müller would turn to him and say, Good morning, Herr Rabiner. They would trade New Year's cards. Once the Rebbe, years later, was on a death line. Left to death, right to life. The last minute he looked up at the angel of death and he recognized that face and he said, Good morning, Herr Müller. And he went to the right side. That friendly German became the angel of death. So many Polish maids turned on their Jewish hosts. Many of them had been shown tremendous kindness, parts of the family. So those are lessons. You can't look away from things, guys. That's what history is all about. Facing things. These are lessons about how we choose our friends today. There are also lessons about how we have to be nice to non-Jews. Many stories about it. some non-Jew who quoted and said that he was nice because 
some Jew once upon a time was nice to him and therefore he did this. There are lessons about who we trust and to what extent. I'm not saying what the lessons are. Which again, we're talking about the big picture. Of course, there were many, many righteous Gentiles who put themselves on the line in the most giving way possible Advad Bechlal to harbor a Jew in those times meant instant death. You have to study that also. But we also have to know that was a fraction. No question that was a fraction. This is true individually as a fraction. It was true internationally as a fraction. The Jewish people had very few friends in 1939 to 1945. And certainly no superpower friends. The United States was not a friend. Elie Wiesel said not so long ago, listen more to your enemy's threats than your allies' promises. The great U.S. and proper England, where were they? Guys, I don't know if you know. I mean, I read a little bit of history. I used to, at least. Do you know how the U.S. fought the war? I want to tell you how. With untold material power. It wasn't Rambo going into a village in Normandy with an M16 firing from each arm, two grenades coming out of his ears, a flamethrower between his teeth. Yeah? It was flattening town after town through aerial and material attacks. This is history. I didn't read it in books to this. I read it. Whenever I read it. Yeah? And then the ground groups would come in. And that's why America was so strong, because they had untold material materials. They had plenty of planes and plenty of ammo. And late in the world, the Luftwaffe, Germans Air Force, was almost totally out of action. It was safe skies. They couldn't spare a few strikes at the Auschwitz train lines. Do you know how many tens of thousands of Hungarian Jews would have been saved? That's just one example. I was a little bit off to play. It's an extra war effort. See, in today's ultra-pluralistic thinking, we don't like to see ourselves as different. We want to march with the nations of the world hand in hand. But the Holocaust has to teach us about us. I'm not telling you you're Moscanas. I'm not telling you the conclusions, but the message, that's what it's about, the the limud, the facing facts, looking at those facts, and thinking about them in the future. Okay. Number four. It tells us about Klyasrol. If you think you can judge the behavior of the Kedoshim, and there are gruesome stories, gruesome stories of all types in the literature, you should try not eating for 48 hours and see what you look like. It would be an interesting thing to check one time, you know? I don't want to think what I would look like. If I go to 4.8 hours, it's not pretty. How you dream about food, how you would conceive many doing many things you would never do for food. What we can and should look at, and this is something that has in recent years, I would say maybe recent decades, been much more looked at, but the original, you know, secular-dominated uh, view, historical rendition of the Shoah did not look at, was the amazing spirit which so many Yidin brought forth. And certainly many lost their faith, but many strengthened their faith and even strengthened themselves, kept their faith and strengthened themselves. And many were Moser Nefesh to the nth degree to keep mitzvahs. 
and to perverse, preserve their Tzalem Elohim. There's so many stories. I just saw a little video in preparation. Naftali Lau, the great uh, Rav Lau's brother. Tuli, I think his name What is this? What do they call him? Lulik. No, Lulik was Yisrael. Naftali was what? Forgot, I forgot his nickname. But he was the one who saved Rav Lau. You know, the, the great Lau dynasty of uh, Rabbanim for 27 generations. The current chief rabbi of Israel is this is Rav Lau. This one's nephew said, he said, I knew so little, but I kept saying to my Shiramalos, that's what I held on to. I held on to Shiramalos. There's a beautiful story told, you probably know, about the Bluzhever that they saved a little bit of oil and wicks, potato oil, whatever, and they lit Hanukkah candles, and the I think it was the Bluzhever made two brachas, and he hesitated, then he made Shechianu, and a secular buddy. I've told you guys before, every Rebbe had to have like a Apikar's buddy. You know what I mean? It was like standard fare. You know? So he turned him afterwards. He says, Do you say Lahadlik Ner Shachanak? I understand. You said Shachanisim, I understand. But how do you say Shechianu in Auschwitz, wherever it was? How do you say Shechianu? He says, You know, I also hesitated. Now, it depends what you read. If you read it in certain stories, he says, I also had, I had that question. And in the firmer books, it says, He didn't have the question. I saw different versions already. But he hesitated. Huh? And he said, when I looked around, I saw all these yidin ready to be Moshe Nefesh for a mitzvah. That was Shechianu. No? And another famous story. Again, there are thousands. There's just another famous story. There's a woman who, whose her child was getting taken by the Nazi Machshimo, and she asked for a knife. And the Nazi thought she was going to kill the kid. She figured she went crazy. She says, what? No, I'll save a bullet. I'll save the work. He takes out, she takes the knife, and she cuts his foreskin. He says, Rabon Shalom, I'm giving you a child back pure, etc. And did a bris milah. But there's so many stories. Again, for sure it goes both ways. You have the story about the shofet who married the fixin. Of course. But learning and reflecting on those stories, we can gain a tremendous amount. There are plenty of books and articles. You know, there's a book, uh, Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust, which is a very beautiful book. There's another book with God in Hell, by Eliezer Berkowitz, outstanding. I have that. So, studying the Holocaust are supposed to ask what to tell us about Yisrael, about ourselves, who we are, who we should be, what we and Jews have inside of ourselves, just like we learned about the Abbas, Avramavinu. These are the children of Avramavinu. Look what Yisrael is. Look what strength you have. Look what in the reserves we have. We live, the time, thank God, in the time when Mesiris Nefesh is not something that's called upon us in so many times. But what are the reservoir that Yisrael has for Mesiris Nefesh? Okay. Another lesson we mentioned, another area of study, is dealing with Yisurim. Difficulties and challenges is something we all face. No time in recent history had even a fraction of the difficulties and challenges faced by the Jewish people. How do they deal with it? Now, don't think about getting off a cattle car and going to the gas chamber. Think of suffering in ghettos for years. And people suffer for years. For those who live through the camps. Like, what got them through? That's an important thing, right? We all have challenges. We all look for inspiration, you know? That would be a great study. I haven't done that study myself. How did Yidin in the Holocaust keep up their fortitude? What does that say to me about how the fact that I can deal with the fact that I didn't get the job, I didn't get the shidduch, my children aren't coming, having trouble with my kids... 
Maybe I can draw on those lessons. You got to make a study out of it to draw from it. What they do to survive? I want to share an interesting fact that uh, that's a little bit odd, but something I picked up. I saw a few survivors' accounts where they said this. They gave significant credit to their survival, to their staying clean by washing themselves. Despite the cold and how easy it would be to just forget about it, they washed themselves. And they saw that, I read a few accounts, that they saw that as like a significant factor. Like, they're clean. Yeah? There's a lesson there. One can make a whole study of this. Maybe someone's done it already. What survivors did, what did they do to survive? Physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. How'd you do it? How'd you make it through? And what does modern man have to learn from that? Okay. Another area of Bosai is unique Divrei Torah. A few more things. Unique Divrei Torah. Door, door, the door show, the Pazik says. Every generation is different and every generation has their Divrei Torah. For example, I heard, um, I'm going to be going with Rabbi Learn and probably Rabbi Levi, Bezrat Hashem, in a few weeks, six weeks or so, to the Olami Conference. Olami Conference. Uh, the Olami is a world organization, as many of you know, cure organization, and many rabbis, tens of rabbis come together, and it's a good time for Chappelle's to be there also. So I happened to go to the last Olami Conference, which was pre-Corona, uh, and Rabbi uh, Lopiansky again shared an amazing uh, idea and he spoke about the idea of divrei Torah Yuchodim, special divrei Torah for each time. I'll explain. He said that the challenge, he was talking about the challenges of cure of a modern society, opened up whole aspects of Torah that were never dealt with. For example, right? what does a day in Beratius mean? Does it have to mean 24 hours? Is it legitimate to say it means something else? Right? So, a thousand years ago, no one would have asked such a question. Now, again, the Torah for sure has a view about it. Not talking about that, right? Everything was, everything is there. But it wasn't part of the act of knowledge. So now, there's more Torah in the world through dealing with that question. Another example I think he gave I'm not sure you get that one, but gender issues, right? What does Zohar and Akeva really mean? Yeah? That's a perfect example. It used to be a man was a man and a woman was a woman. Boys were boys and men were men. Yeah? All in the family. No? Archie Bunker? No? Meathead? Okay. So it used to be a man was a man and a woman was a woman. And no one thought about it too much, right? Now, again... No one misunderstand me. We're not saying because of society's things the Torah concepts change, no way. But it gives us more of a focus. It causes me to focus in. What's a man really, essentially? Can a man have Nekeva aspects or not? Yeah. What? What does it mean? That's a great question. But before the challenge came there, I didn't have to draw in and figure out what the Torah view was, really. Another example, Corona, right? Corona brought up lots of issues and Divrei Torah that we're used to thinking about. Things like watching the health of others. That suddenly became much more of a topic. And what are the Gdamba? So you could be a big Tamachacham, but you never thought about, do I have to wash my hands? Is that important? 
not if I work at McDonald's, I mean Stam, right? Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing to go into shul with a cold? Yes, no? Should I keep the window open? Should I not keep the window open? Right or wrong, right? That focused the whole different realm of Dibre Torah. So, he explained that, so those Dibre Torah, I think he said it deeper, the Dibre Torah coming down from a high place in, in these forms, getting opened up by these questions. So there's new, new Dibre Torah coming into the world, right? Uh, obviously computers, right? All the, all the AI, programming cars, hit this one, hit that one, right? Who you hit? Can alcoholic in... Go to a video meeting on Shabbos, right? So we're not talking about any of these specific issues. But I remember, I was very struck when he said this. But that's that's what every door brings. Every door is bringing new Torah into the world that wasn't necessarily wasn't wasn't un, uncased before. Now, for sure, the Holocaust has its own divrei Torah, right? Once we say that, I'm just going to give two examples which jump out at me. One is, of course, the Oli Piasetzna, right? Colonus Kalman. Shapiro, the great Pisnetsa Rebbe, was one of the great Rebbes of pre-war, uh, in, in the interwar period. Eish Kodesh, and uh, Tzavaziruz, and Hachshar uh, Savreichim, Chavasat Hamidu, of course. So Eish Kodesh, with the drushes he gave in the Warsaw Ghetto. How he's Mechazic people, Shalashudas. He never, ever had such a book. I can't think of another book which is similar to it. You know? And unusual shalos of Chuvas, which Rabbi Haber often gives a, a wonderful shiran. So that's another area. That's what I mean to say. The area, right? Someone can make a whole study out of that. The Divrei Torah Yuchadim, out of this incredible, horrific, terrible, historic period, what were the Divrei Torah that came out of that time? Okay, we'll say just two more. You're going to love the last one. We mentioned, what does it tell us about Orthodox and non-Orthodox leadership? How did Orthodox leadership outside of those suffering, deal with helping their brothers, and how did the non-Orthodox? Those in the U.S., Great Britain, Israel, what did, Zion, why did, what did the Zionist establishment do and not do, and why? Study that. Look into it. it. tells you something. There's a lot to learn there. I want to share one lesson, and which always strikes me. And we're not talking about everybody, of course, but as a klal, and certainly as you know, many, many, many people, Noted non-Orthodox leadership in the U.S., at least, would never take a step that wasn't legal according to U.S. law. Everybody got that? I could save Jews, but I have to do something that's not official. This is something that had Gedolim, like Irvine Cutler, upset to the nth degree. And now we all look back, I hope, and say that that is so crazy. So send a few tanks over if you can save thousands of Jews. We understand why America had its laws, but where are we? So I would say that that shows when your yardstick is in Torah, there are tremendous, tremendous mistakes you can make, even if you're generally well-meaning. But you can't stop there. Was the Orthodox response enough? Books written about this. There were Gedolim and lay leaders like Ravon Cutler, Revelia Silver, Ram Kalmanovich, Miro Shishiva, Irving Bunim, Mike Tress, who worked tirelessly. But it wasn't enough. Not by a long shot. And we know that today. And it's easy to point fingers. And I just did it a minute ago. But you have to ask yourself questions. Why was the Orthodox response not more? Why was Ravon such an outlier? 
of course, of Noach Weinberg, but it wasn't just him. Rabbi Shimon Schwab said the same exact thing, and I heard Revolba quoting Rabbi Shimon Schwab in the most strong I ever heard. I heard Revolba maybe a hundred times speak, maybe eighty times. I never ever heard him spoke in the he spoke in a monotone. I never heard him as moved as when he quoted Rabbi Shimon Schwab, and one of Rabbi Shimon Schwab's grandchildren told me the backstory to that, which I won't say right now. But I never heard Revolba quoted. Easily as moved as when he quoted Rishim Shabab calling the situation of Jews today a Holocaust. A Holocaust. Intermarriage. Are we doing enough about that? Are we learning a lesson? What does that mean? What do you do? I'm not the person to answer. It's really not a global level. But there's a Holocaust going on today. A Holocaust. Jews going lose, being lost daily. Daily. Now we, we look back 80 years and say they didn't do enough. What are we doing? Maybe if we studied the Holocaust more, we would. So, let's review the areas we touched on. We spoke about what the Shoah tells us about mankind, area of study. We gave a little bit about many of the different areas, but these are areas of study. What does this time tell me about mankind? What does this tell me about the Germans? What does this tell me about the nations of the world? What does it tell me about Kalei What can it teach me about dealing with difficulties in Yisurim? I'm so curious to know the unique Divrei Torah that were, that were produced over this period, right, and how that will affect all the other things that we mentioned. What it tells us about Orthodox and non-Orthodox Jewish leadership. Uh... So are both sides. These are some of the areas we can go into and the research and answers and limud will help us truly build a better, more humane, more realistic, more aware Jewish future for ourselves and our communities.